0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I am the Grumpy Surfer and your host, Ads Lyson. I hope you're all okay. I hope you've had a cracking two weeks uh, and enjoyed the podcast with Eric Davis. I've had loads of really good feedback off you all. Yeah, he's been uh, telling me he's had some really good feedback from that podcast too. You guys are absolutely awesome. So thanks for tuning in. Every, uh, Every episode, absolutely amazing. This week's podcast is with a former Royal Marines commando and now a war film documentary maker. His previous documentary was called The Robin Hood Complex and has now just completed and is doing a tour of his new documentary called 45 Days, which follows the situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So please enjoy my conversation with a good friend, and a gentleman of a man, Emil Geeson. <music> Emil Geeson, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Cheers, yeah, thanks. All good. What have you been up to? Um, just travelling the world, avoiding COVID.
0: <laughs> avoiding COVID, uh, and you've been promoting your new documentary coming out. Forty-five days.
1: Yeah, forty-five days, which are now out. Um, is a documentary about the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan where in 20 end of 2022 wrong end of 2020 I'm losing my days um a war broke out in the Caucasus and I went out there to film for my third feature documentary um so yeah it's been a, over a year in process and we just finished the U.S tour Canada tour and a London tour just um theaters and just people coming along watching the film
0: been following your escapades over socials and it seems like you've been uh, been having a pretty good time with it as well as uh you know, going to see lots of different places. Some of the some of the most um prolific and high profile places like in Hollywood and and Yeah. And
1: different- well, we were lucky enough, um, we premiered where well, we premiered in Armenia and Yorvan. But then when we went to USA, we premiered in the Chinese theatre. So we have done actually two screenings in the Chinese theatre, which is an iconic place, Star Wars premiered there, and 45 Days was premiered there. Um, so for me as a documentary filmmaker, it was it was awesome. And we, we sold it out in 36 hours. And to sell a documentary out off of China, off the Chinese theatre was immense, really, because especially in COVID times, people weren't going out to the theatre and we managed to just fill all the cinemas that we'd done across the whole West Coast, East Coast, and then sell out touring Canada.
0: What do you think that was? Is it because of sort of to do with the the nationalities of people that they're interested in it? Or was it to do with like the advertising that came with it? It's
1: a combination. The main one is because we'll talk about it in a bit, I suppose, is the war. The documentary 45 days is about the Armenian Azerbaijan war from the perspective of the Armenians. And there's millions of Armenians living throughout the world known as the diaspora. And the biggest concentration of them outside Armenia is actually in america so when it came to the documentary a lot of them wanted to come along um to watch it to support to see what was went on in the homeland because there's obviously a lot of fake news at the time um, and i mean you actually lost the war so it's very emotional for them to come so yeah that's the main reason we're selling out cinemas and knowing that is people were supporting people want to support independent films so people coming along um, and the film talks about the injustice what happened to the Armenian people so towards the end of the tour as more people finding out about it that were non-Armenian they wanted to come and see especially people from the black community because obviously the Black Lives Matters movement was massive and a lot of them were seeing an injustice from another group of people so they were coming along supporting it and just a lot of awareness and through marketing.
0: Yeah I, I watched the documentary last night um, I know I told you that I was going to come to London to uh, to watch it. You lied. It. <laughs> I did lie. I saw quite a few other uh, bootnecks went down and watched it, didn't they? Yeah, but from the core, a lot of guys come
1: along to support all, all my films. So all, all my all my um, documentaries we've done cinema releases. So yeah, a lot of bootnecks have come along to support.
0: It's really good to see. Especially must be must be a feel good feeling for you as well to have those people that you know you've served with and you know you talk to whether it's over socials or you know you live by Mm. that that come and support you as well as all these other people as well
1: yeah but the main thing about bootnecks they always want a discount they always want like a mates rates and it's like you're supposed to be coming along to support me not asking for free tickets um but yeah bootnecks come along they always want to go for wets afterwards so it's always good to see bootnecks there because it's like where it all started was from the core
0: do you feel that's a pretty cool thing as well? Because I, I know a lot of people that leave the military and they, f- the, the one of the things that you hear that they say the most is that they miss the camaraderie and all that sort of thing as well. So do, do you find that's kind of a, a good sort of like mental stepping stone with you? Because you can almost step out of it into civilian life, but then you're kind of stepping back into it when all the lads are back together.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. Is like you say, when people leave the corps or the military, they get very disconnected with their day to day life. Knowing that their mates who are still serving, their life goes on. It's like a train; you get off at a station, that train keeps going. Um, so once in a while, it's nice to get back on that train, or your friends get off the train at another station, you meet again. Um, because it is that like I saying, it's the roots where you came from, is. Like even Washington, we've done the screen in Washington and two of my mates' bootnecks came along to Washington. I haven't seen them for coming on 15, 16 years now. And the conversation is literally where you left it. And that's the unique thing with servicemen and service women is that conversation, you don't need to speak to them daily. You're friends for life, which a lot of civilians don't get. They're like, you haven't phoned me for two months. And it's like, well, we're still friends. Um, but it, within the core, you have that element of where people come and go, but they always want to still like meet up and have a drink and support what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I, I've got to experience that yet. You know, we were just talking about this before we turned the microphones on that I'm in the um, sort of closing stages last few months where I actually leave, leave. I'm on terminal leave now. And uh, I don't know whether it's going to be something that I'm going to struggle with, find difficult with. I, I, guess, I guess I'll find out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think every, when everyone leaves, I think it's a struggle for everyone because you go from working with your mates every day to then going outside and then you're totally on your, on your own. And it, it took me about two years to adapt and adjust to civilian life to go, actually, I'm no longer Sergeant Geeson. I'm now Emil Geeson in Civvy Street, who was a former Royal Marine. I think a lot of guys leave and that's why mental health is massive because guys leave and they get stuck in this rut where when you're in the military, if anything goes wrong, you've always got people around you to support you. And when you're in civilian world, you still have a support network, but you're very much on your own. When you're down, you're down and it's like you can call upon your friends to help you, but you can't go see a sergeant major and go, I need a week off and you're getting paid for that week. You're, you're literally you're like live or die. So, yeah, it's, it's a massive adjustment, especially I think I've done 12 years. And I think the longer you do in the military, the more uh, insular you come, the more um, self-dependent you come onto the system. So when you leave, it's more of a shock. The longer you've been, and some guys I know who are their 22 years now, Mark, and they're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do when I become a civvy. is because they didn't know anything else. Most of them, most of us joined when we we're 18, 19, 20. So for do full 22 years, you're in your 40s now, and all of a sudden you haven't got mum and dad's like Overwatch. You do you know I mean you haven't got a galley to go eat food if you're hungry or somewhere? You have an argument with your wife or your girlfriend, you can just sleep in the grotts. When you're in civvy streets, like, what do I do now?
0: yeah that's one thing i i actually had quite a funny conversation with one of my friends about that is like you know the times of i i use camps to use as like bases to go surfing with because yeah. you know the majority of raw marine camps are, are by the sea so whether it's down in plymouth or up in north devon or, or wherever it is or, or even like using rf camps there's one down by uh down in Newquay mm. i always used to use them to, f- for that and uh like you say, you you're not wanting for accommodation or food, or if you do have an issue, you you know pretty much that you're going to get looked after.
1: And free parking.
0: And parking. I used
1: to do it all the time.
0: Yeah, scran stealing as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So business stealing.
0: Gone. Yeah, it's all gone now. So uh, I don't know. It's a good job I've got a car that actually has all the seats that fold down in the back, so I can throw <laughs> A little bit of background from us though. So we actually were in training the same time you joined up before I did. And I remember, uh, you know, getting through training and um, you were in hunter company for, for quite a bit as well. And then as we left training uh, and and passed out, we we were kind of like not simultaneously following each other, but you know, you went down the anti-tank route and, Mm. uh, and so did I. So, you know, Let's talk a little bit about you know where you grew up and and why you actually joined the military
1: yeah so i I grew up in london um in central London and moved to north London, and then I always wanted to join the corps well, <clears throat> but the problem I had is my eyesight I've got really bad eyes um a minus six point five actually so I wear contact lenses, so most people don't know I've got contact lenses in um so i Wanted to join the Corps and I thought my eyes are too bad, it's, it's below the thing. So then I, I had braces and I thought, I really want to join the military. I know I can't join the Marines, so I thought like, I'm going to join the Navy. So I went to do the test to join the Navy. Um, and then the guy said a joke in the careers office and I smiled and he goes, you, you wear braces? And I go, yeah, my teeth. Um, he goes, Yo, you can't join the services. if you have got braces on? He goes, you have to wait till they come off. So I was like, okay. So I went back to college, continued to do my A-levels. And I thought, well, I'm just going to apply for the Marines. I'm going to try it. So I went... Done the medical and when I done the medical, um, do you know like the the old boards in Opticians where it's got the big A at the top and all the all the letters? I memorized it. So then when he goes, Do you wear contact lenses? I'm like, Yeah, he's like, take your contact lenses out. So I took my contact lenses out and then he's like, You read the board and I couldn't even see the big A. Um, so I memorized it all and he's like, You do it backwards. I was like, Ah, oh, backwards. So I'm starting memorising how what it was. So he's like Z C da, da. um he's like, Yeah, your eyes are good, put your contact lenses back in. And so I passed the medical. Um so yeah, I do recommend people to cheat once in a while. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I luckily I passed that, done my PRMC, then got into the core and then I joined training in June the 12th, um, 2000 and that's where the journey started. And I'm um, like, yeah, I never had a problem with my eyes ever because um, I, I wear contact lenses all the time. So it's never been an issue. So it's lucky. really weird,
0: isn't it? You, you They put these constraints in for like eyesight and, and hearing and... And I, I know loads of people that are colorblind. Yeah, yeah. And I know loads of people that have got super bad hearing before they even join up. I mean, mine's degraded as, as time's gone on because, you know, of having machine guns and being blown up a few times and stuff like that. So it's going to wear on your ears a little bit. But you know, in yeah. Yeah, people have got worse hearing than I have. And that's before they've even started. I I, I guess, like you say, it's only cheating if you get caught, right? Yeah
1: which I nearly did actually in training because um, I had to go in and get for your respirator, for your gas mask, the lenses inside. And so they had to do another eye test and then they they I luckily managed to like cuff that one to get through that. So I had lenses in my respirator that I couldn't even use. So I just, once again, just used my contact lenses always.
0: How did you find joining the Marines? Was it everything that you that, that you expected it to be or was it very different?
1: Um, I, I knew it was going to be hard, but... um what my training team used to call the wide boy, always got something to say for myself. So um, it was a bit of a culture shock. The fact is that you're in the big boy world, that everything you do has consequences. So, um, but yeah, training for me was quite hard because in a sense, not, I wouldn't say physically hard, but I would say just mentally, you're away from home. Even though I enjoyed being home, I was, I was in the cadets, I was in the scouts, I was always away like um, as a youngster. But the fact is that, like I was saying before, is that everything's on you that if you fuck up, it's, it's coming back on you. And knowing that when, you, when you're in trainings collectively, if one of you fucks up, you all fuck up. And you used to be a PTI after you left, so you know full well about thrashing everyone for the sake of just one person. So is that, but then that's what builds you. You become part of a team. You then realise that you're not an individual anymore. You're part of a, a bigger picture. And I think very much so that training is training. And I, years later, um, I went back as an instructor, with recruits and i enjoyed it because you see it for what it is limston is a process or 32 weeks whatever it is now um to get you from a to b to go to commander unit and commander unit life is nothing like warm Marine training it's just a it's a a means to an end and the famous phrasing that you'll get banged out in a unit if you've done that um never happens in a unit people don't just get banged out for like any stupid little thing like they tell you in training so there's a lot of fear factor about when you do go to your command unit and when i passed out of training i went straight to four five command up in scotland So you couldn't get any further from london if you tried so I then went up to four five um done an afghan up there um 2002 jacana then i moved down to four two that's where you were you were in m company weren't you and i went to k company I'd done Telic 1 with 4-2 um, Commando, uh, and then, yeah, the Invasion of Iraq, and I went and done Herrick 5 um, with 4-2, where, where I was I was the I-Star Troop, um, MSG, like, support. Um, like, the recce Troop, but with machine guns kind of thing. So we had a good tour, and then after that, I went on a training team at Limpstone for a bit, a year and a half, and then I went to 40 Commando, um, where I'd done another Herrick, which was Herrick 12 with 40 Commando Alpha Company. Um, And then during all that, I went off and done um, to RAF St. Morgans to do the resistance resistance interrogation course to become an interrogator, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then when I got to about 2012, which was my 12 year mark, um, I was a rank of sergeant. I decided I've done everything I want to do. There's nothing more. I could see there was a lot of bullshit going on, especially in the seniors mess where you become part of the system more. As a corporal, you could be a bit more voiceful if things are wrong. When you become a sergeant, you've got very much toe the line because you're on first name terms with the RSM, who's like, make it happen. So very much, I was like, do I want to stay here? I'm at that halfway point. Do I stay and become one of these old crusty sergeant majors? Or do I leave and do something new? And at the time, maritime security was kicking off, people were wearing a lot of money, the temptation of that. And I was just content with my service. And I was like, right, it's time to go.
0: Do you ever look back and think about the time, your times in Afghanistan? Because it's, it's quite prolific for me. And, uh, I, you know, you talk about Jucana and Jucana doesn't seem 20 years ago. Mm. It seems like five minutes ago. And I've got I've got photo albums upstairs, you know, of, of pictures. What um, you, Zulu
1: Company or X-Ray? I was in an X-Ray Company. X-ray. Yeah. Oh, you were with Jules, weren't you? Yeah. Jules Maron.
0: Yeah. So I, I was, uh, I, I did my tanks course, anti-tanks course, and then literally went straight up to Scotland and got put into x-ray company, but I didn't get put into an anti-tank troop. I got put into the, one of the, um, the general duties mm. uh, sections. Um, we so happened to be with a uh, guy called Dave, who was a mountain leader. So the, and I was in his section and the majority of the time we were off basically doing like the forward wreckies And because he was in ML, there was six of us in this section. There weren't like the was eight that main Dave
1: section. Ka- no, that's, no, what was his name? Dave Taylor.
0: Dave Taylor, yeah, and uh, yeah, we we spent the majority of the time off doing um, like and stuff Mm. for like landing sites, and if we were going off to another position, we'd we'd go off first and do it, come back. So I wasn't really heavily involved with that, and I just remember seeing the lads. In fact, do you remember? uh, Do you remember Andy Grange? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Andy uh, was my my first recruit troop instructor and he hated me with a passion <laughs> like apps like just every single day was you're never passing out of training and i'm going to kill you one of them guys one of them guys so every single day you know no, no positive reinforcement i was just told i was shit every day it just probably was <laughs> <He's> right <laughs> <laughs> it's probably right but i just remember we went and did a um a landing site for the unit to come in when we first flew in uh, into the mountains And he was with a GPMG SF section. Mm. And he was carrying like all this heavy kit. And I just had a data can and my rifle and my weapon. And and that was it. And uh, one of the bosses goes, right, you need to take uh, the GPMGs up that. Side of the mountain there and set up a, a bit of Overwatch. And I just remember looking at him and he's just, his head dropped down and his shoulders went down. And I was like, Yes, mm-hmm. motherfucker, get up there.
1: So, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I was GD until i done Jakarna and Telic 1 as GD and then done my tanks after that. Oh, okay. But in, on Jakarna, I was one of those guys. I was one of the, I was GPM GSF team for MST, for Whiskey Company. So I know full well like what he must have been going through, walking up all them hills with all that equipment. So that, like, the only, only creatures on Earth that carry their home on their back are tortoises and snails, and the others are Royal Marines, because the amount of equipment you carry on your back, which is not physically possible, but Jakarna was just it was hardcore the amount of weight we were carrying up their mountains and no wonder we, we couldn't keep up with al-qaeda or the bin laden trail and everything is because we were just too slow we just had so much equipment we weren't doing like strike ops quick um in and out because the only time we did go light was when we backed up um australian sas when they got bumped massively and um, we went out and in the end we were collecting rainwater for for water, we ran out of food because there weren't resupply coming in. It was it's a bit of an epic. So, yeah, it's like, do you carry too much stuff or do not? And it even got to the stage where Sergeant Major was like checking people's equipment and going, right, one toothbrush between two men is because you need to cut down on weight. It's like, I'm carrying here like over a thousand link, yeah, um, with 762. I've got mortar bombs, I've got discs, got radio batteries, I've got food. I don't, I don't think a toothbrush is really going to like cane it too much um but yeah it was hardcore jacana with the amount of weight we're carrying
0: the, the one that broke the camel's back was when they said right you need to cut your roll mat down in half oh
1: yeah, yeah like, well how is how
0: is a, how is a yeah, foam yeah. roll mat gonna cut your weight <laughs> it, it, down? Was, it was
1: ridiculous yeah
0: no sleeping bags yeah yeah no sleeping bags just
1: bivy bags getting them
0: in there i remember, I remember in the, digging the shell scrape at, at the top of this mountain uh, with, with this other lad and we had no warmers kit it was really warm in the day, but at night it was freezing, Bolting, yeah. like it was almost like snowing, and you just curled up like spooning each other. Yeah. just a day, warmth.
1: it was a You're never getting closer to a man again.
0: Yeah, it was a very good mountain train in that yeah. one,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, but like you say now, it seems like a lifetime ago for me. Really, Chicana. do I you mean? I, even there, there's memories coming back now that I haven't really remembered for so long. Because I think when you're in the core and you do do a lot of ops like a lot of people say to me um oh do you remember this as a child i was like i don't me- i don't have mem- many memories of a child not because i had a bad childhood i had a great childhood it's because you, you do so much in your adult life that your brain's like a hard drive there's only so much information it can it can hold um so yeah stuff like and that slowly moves to the background and all things like from iraq if it's slowly moving backwards because you're doing so much more in, in your present life um am sure, just hit that hit the microphone waving my hands around so yeah it is it's, it's tough like to remember them like saying photo albums i'd love to see your photo albums afterwards actually because it just jogs memories of things that you saw people that you've been with um even names i'm getting very forgetful on names because i just meet so many people now it's like oh do you remember such and such i'm like who's that guy and then it's like you're good friends with him. i was like oh yeah and it, it triggers them so um yeah because being like in the core is you have so many memories from it
0: how did you find the transition between all, all the different ops because Jakarta was very much a mountain-based warfare um you then went to 4-2 commander so you you were involved with the invasion of iraq whereas i was um involved with the support of um Special forces mm. up in the Al Jazeera Desert, desert um, by Syria. So we had we had two very contrasting um, ways of looking at at that conflict. And then you've pretty much done exactly the same as I have. Herrick Five was very connected. Yeah, yeah, very connected. Like contact every other day, pretty much mm. Through Brilliant the whole courage, of the six yeah. months. Amazing. And then Herrick Twelve. I mean, that could not have been a different kettle of fish to the rest of them as well. Mm.
1: Yeah, no, all, all all the ops. So this is the thing. This is when I decided to leave. It's because all the ops i done were brilliant ops um, for their own little way. And I, I say it brilliant in the sense that some people listen to this will go, yeah, but people died on them. How can be brilliant? It's like, well, you, anyone who served on these tours, well, the majority of guys will say, no, I had a good time because I was doing what I was trained to do. Um, It's like a doctor never doing all your training and never being able to treat anyone. It's that kind of like that idea. So like to be a Royal Marine and doing it frontline operations on all these different operations was like massive. It's because I meet now, I live in Exmouth now. um, So when I am home, I see guys who are still serving, who've done no operations. And they just like, they they look at guys who like us, who have done operations and quite kinetic ones. And to them, it's like, we want to do that. And I, I say to them, be careful what you wish for. It's exactly what I say. Was even now I go to war zones like as fil- as a filmmaker and I've seen war throughout my whole adult life. And I was like, be careful what you got. But I did have a good time when I was serving. I wouldn't change that for anything. I don't support the reasons we went to Afghanistan. I don't support the reasons why we went to Iraq now at the time I did. Um, but I still wouldn't change them days. If people go, can you turn back clock? And I go, well, no, soldiers are soldiers. The military is the military. We don't get involved in the politics. If we could go back in time and change the politics, yeah, I will change the politics, but I wouldn't change how we fought the wars that we were told to go and fight um, because we did it the way we, we, we should have. Um, so yeah, no, I enjoyed my, t- my tours. And like The invasion of Iraq for me was very quick. Very, we, were, we landed on the al Peninsula Peninsula um, very quickly and then worked all the way up to Basra. So I think that took us about just two and a half months, three months. And then very much as soon as we got to Basra, we took Saddam's palace and then we got taken out, done a few patrols in the area, and then we got taken to the port and taken out very quickly. And then the army came in and took over our positions. So uh, yeah, and then going to Afghanistan, like saying Herrick 5. The good thing about Herrick 5 is I spent the majority of my time in Kajaki and Kajaki was just... war zone it was there was no civilians there it was just taliban everywhere going out fighting the taliban on on daily every other day having contacts um so but there was no ieds and that's what made it great it was someone shot at you you then go down okay boom top section 200 meters rapid fire then you go into your plan to do a section attack and I i was a corporal then um and i was a team leader so um it was the old school, the way you should have been fighting, the way you were trained to fight, and it was very kinetic. And then we come to Herrick 12, where it was IED central, where, okay, right, we're getting shot at now. Why are we been shot at? You have to think now on your tactics, Going, we're being shot at in this location. Why are they shooting us here and now? There's a reason for it. It's because they've IED'd the ditch to the right. They're expecting you to break contact, get into that ditch and blow yourself up. So the tactics had to be changed because they've now, by this time, they've spent over 12 years watching us. Watching how we fight, how we do things, how we maneuver across the battlefield, how we put our vehicles, where we need to put our vehicles. If they come and attack us, where are they going to put a mouse hole charge onto that wall? How do we IED that? It was counter, it was cat and mouse all the way through. Um, and I enjoyed that tour, even though we had massive casualties. I enjoyed it because I ran um, a fire support group, I was the command of it. Um, so we had all the jackal vehicles that were going out. We're doing the QRF, we're doing all the. Um, patrol based firing so we had our gun line set up so we're constantly um kinetic especially alpha company in the south um because we had the freedom of movement to move around that area so i had a great tour there and all the tours were very different like you were saying there and it's just a it was a good experience
0: i think it's quite funny when you look at it on a a personal development sort of plane where you know we we're all marines together then we we're all corporals together like on training teams and stuff and mm. i'm talking you know tomo's been on um the podcast three times now you three know times. Uh, yeah struggling for guests <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know we, we talk about different things but it's all very everything's very evolutionary and the people that i get in here have always been sort of like around the same time and done the mm. same sort of things and it's quite Interesting for me to get different perspectives of different things because you know you were with Alpha Company, mm. Tomo was with Delta Company, Delta, I, was, yeah. I was with Bravo Company, and we were all in different places doing the same thing, but we had different areas of interest. Well, yeah, which is which which was really cool.
1: <clears throat> like you say now on 12, you're with Bravo Company and you're very restricted on your movement because the IEDs and that part of Sangin were terrible. Like, do you mean and we were spread out a yeah. lot? So your patrol bases were spread across the 611, weren't it? Um and then you had Delta Company; it was in Kajaki first, and then they started doing like the mobile ops groups. And then they came to Sangin last minute, um, so they had a different tour to what we all had um, as well. So, and then Charlie Company had a different tour because they had the, the commanding officer who was based there, so he's a bit more restricted on what they could do. Um, so, yeah, it, it was even though you're in the same area and you're hearing like different radios going on, you're still fighting a very different war because of what's going on there. And knowing that is because Sangin was was a shithole. In a sense, I, I, in Herrick 5, I don't know if you went to do Operation um, Silver right at the end, where we went into clear Sangin with the 101st Airborne. I got kazuvacked.
0: Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I got blown up.
1: Ah, oh, what a loser. Oh, were you in a Viking that got hit? No,
0: I was in the first wimmick that went over an anti-tank mine and blew up. Yeah, I was, my uh, my um, wimmick crew got kazuvacked. No way. Yeah.
1: So, oh, well, you missed out then on a, on a great up. No, we just went into um, Sangin then late at night to push out with the 101st to clear Sangin. And we thought, oh yeah, Sangin's now taken, now we can go home. And then obviously in 2010, we all go back to Sangin. Um, so yeah, and it was just, it's just a hotbed for the Taliban. The Taliban wanted to hold on to Sangin. Um, and this is what's going on now is the fact is that all these areas that we were fighting for in Afghanistan are now back under the control of the Taliban.
0: How do you feel about that? How, what was your first sort of like feelings of it when, when it came over the news?
1: well i was i was in america at the time so i was promoting 45 days and doing a tour so a lot of the people that i know in america or americans are different than brits when it comes to foreign policy brits are a bit more critical of our own foreign policy we're more critical of our government americans are a bit less let's call a spade of spade, stupid they just they take things at face value so they saw afghanistan very differently to how i saw afghanistan especially ones who didn't fight there um that everyone was asking me, what do you think about Afghanistan? I was like, Pfft, what, what do you mean? What, what do you want? to Continue wasting lives over land that we're never going to do anything with. Uh, we were very much an occupying force. And the way I look at it, and the fact is that if we weren't there, would there be IEDs? Will children and civilians be blowing themselves up if we weren't there? No, the Taliban only put IEDs to fight us. So if we weren't actually there, would these, would they, would these people live, live in more security? And the fact is, even though we were very, very much going out and trying to help the local population, we really didn't achieve much, especially in areas like Helmand province, which are the arsehole of any country.
0: Well, it's not just that. It's not just that it's the arsehole of the countries. It's that far removed from like Kabul and the yeah. Ma- and Kandahar. It's that far removed from there that technology hasn't hasn't reached there. These people are very much not Neanderthalic, but almost like cavemanic so to speak yeah. where they get on with their day-to-day lives they live in a mud hut but they don't know any different are they happy they probably are mm. but then when we come in and we're trying to westernize and tell them you need to do this you need electricity you need that well you know they're just living to their means like ev- like everybody would really
1: yeah but if you think about like what happened there so obviously we went 9-11 happened we went to afghanistan looking for bin laden Destroying Taliban training camps, uh, hunting down Al Qaeda. Very much quickly, the emphasis changed to Iraq in 2003, weapons of mass destruction, which we all know was a, a total and utter lie. Um, and then from after 2003, it was very quickly like well, we need to go back to Afghanistan. And and then very quickly, in 2006 it was, is where the Brits started building Camp Bastion because we got tasked with Helmand province. And you got to think, what was our real mission in Afghanistan? The mission was to rid it of al-Qaeda, destroy the training camps, and for look, look for bin Laden. Taliban really wasn't their agenda at the time. The Taliban were seen as supporters of bin Laden, so they were on the on the map. But as such, the mission wasn't to defeat the Taliban start And Helmand province, really, the Brits took upon off their own emphasis to go we're going to take Helmand province with the american support yeah we're going to we're going to go now but why did we go for Helmand province and the main reason we went for Helmand province is is because a lot of it was general bullshit from generals and military commanders who wanted a war they wanted to have some importance in that region to go well Helmand province even though it's got a sphere of influence it doesn't really strategically give us anything it's a lot like saying it's men people living in mud huts so why were the brits so intent to take that area why would the americans give it to us because the higher command wanted to have a war they wanted to prove themselves as, as leaders because strategically Helmand province didn't offer anything yeah the taliban were using it to roam around using it as their launching bases and stuff like that, but really the battle wasn't there the main security was kandahar um and, and kabul really that we needed um, so I think it was massive mission creep why we got into Helmand province. And even in 2010, when Americans took over from us, is because we didn't deploy enough men to Helmand province. We couldn't sustain it. We had patrol bases which had four or five men in. Four or five men in a patrol base. Imagine the Taliban now knew there was only five men sat in that patrol base. It's, it's crazy how we survived for so long there. not in that, we were killing a lot of people. We were killing a lot of Taliban. And they were just regenerating coming across the border from um, pakistan and not only that is you think about when we first landed in afghanistan in 2001 we're now fighting in 2010 for herrick 12 we're talking about now is people that were killed in 2001 and 2002 their older children their 10 year old children are now at 18 year olds so every time we killed someone we didn't which just justly for some people of course because there was an enemy that we we're fighting but what we're doing is we're creating more enemies by people that were more sitting on the fence going actually yeah i don't mind the brits and americans here, actually they might change something all of a sudden you kill their uncle you've now created all their cousins all the brothers all the sisters now turn against you so all i think what we're doing is counterproductive in the sense that we're killing a lot of people but they're making more enemies it was making it harder for us the counterinsurgency operations need to be long term as in we're talking decades um to implement here and it was very hard to do um, operations. The Americans don't understand counterinsurgency at all. The Brits we do it very good, and then as you probably remember, courageous restraint we got told, which was came down from the Americans about courageous restraint and what that was was, if you see someone who's shooting at you, maybe he's having a bad day. Do you really need to kill him? And that's what they were implementing. And go, mm. and it's like when you talk about areas like Sangin, there is none of that. That everyone who's shooting at you is a bad guy, and you need to shoot back. So, our commanders very much were hell bent on courageous strength. Think before you shoot. And I told all my troop, I was like, don't even get that. Get that. Get them two words, which are oxymorons. Get them out of your head. And if you see someone with a weapon and life's in threat, you've got the right to engage. And I was hearing on the radio young lads with different commanders who were going, I've got two men sneaking up to our patrol base with wet AK 47s. Have I got permission to shoot? And I'm like, get to that stage of men's lives now in danger. Our men's lives in danger because they're now confused on what the rules of engagement are because we've got one one guy who's a troop sergeant i'm going to name him but he was more content in what the commanding officer wanted rather than what his men wanted on the ground and it was putting men's life in danger so i think very much is we were looking for an exit plan in afghanistan the brits we left before the americans but when americans pulled out they, they just pulled that vacuum and the taliban Who aren't as strong as people think they are, but they had just built that momentum and took the book Kabul very quickly. And it's a shame, of course, it's a shame, but I don't think we had a long term plan. We didn't have a long term plan in Iraq, we didn't have a long term plan in Afghanistan. And I think the Brits and Americans don't have a long term plan anywhere.
0: I think I was very frustrated when it came across. And like I said to you at the very start, I'm not politically driven. I don't follow politics, don't follow policies of any other countries, let alone our own. I have my point of views because, you know, like I said, before we turn the microphones on, you know, I'm, I, I don't need that negativity in my life. You're I f-
1: all about the surf, aren't you? I, yeah, I am, man.
0: <laughs> uh, I follow current affairs, but I'm not like embedded in it. I won't sit down and have hour-long conversations about, you know, why we should implement this and why we shouldn't. But, but when that... F- when the Taliban flew, like flew into Kabul within days, mm. I was, I was quite, I was quite angry. It was almost like a, a roller coaster of emotions for me. I was like, it was inevitable, no doubt. Whether it was you know last year, ten years time, it was inevitable. that It's their country. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, Red Dawn. If the Russians invaded this country eventually they're going to leave and then you just carry on and that and that's just kind of the way I, I saw it in my head but i was very frustrated in the fact that i was just thinking about the things that we'd done and the ground we'd been over and it was just a little bit like you always knew it subconsciously that it was just kind of pointless mm-hmm. it was all it was all really pointless but like you say when you talk about it and you say it was fun and you enjoyed it it was fun and contacts and being in, like, I was in some really heavy situations, mm. like, literally, like, super close.
1: Yeah. Like and, rounds bouncing off your sandbags, rounds bouncing off your vehicle. Yeah. It's, yeah, like,
0: in, in close proximity mm. of, of the Taliban and and wh- whoever it was who had another weapon that were trying to kill you. I was in some really, really close situations but all that's really done for me in my life is just, we're going to use this classic cliche, it's just been a character builder. Yeah. It's made me the person to the way that I think and, 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 and my personality now. Now, if I hadn't have done all of those things, maybe I wouldn't be like I am now. But at the end of the day, it's been, it's gone. It's in the past. And there's not a great deal we can do about it, really.
1: No, and the way I look at it is, tours which were generally six month tours of um, off duty were survival it was okay we're here on day one we've got a rough end date we just need to stay alive for six months and of course within that six months we're going to do everything we can to protect the local population to try and help them however we can but very much i look i saw afghanistan and iraq very much like that it was just a it's a job and i think a lot of guys mental health deteriorates because they get too emotionally connected to what's going on um i struggle with emotions in general, it's just who I am. Um but I I see operations like, right, we're here, six months time we're going home again, and the next guys are gonna come in here. Um of course, like I'm saying we do what we can, but ultimately it's policy, it's it's foreign policy that's gonna change what's going to go on in this region. And I thought I'd fight in, we're not changing anything. And I knew that very early on. So when when I was in America and everyone's going, Oh, what do you think about Afghanistan? I was like, Pfft. What, you, what are we going to do send another 60,000 troops there come boys coming back in body bags then people start moaning why is our son's been blown up why has our son got ptsd why is our son dead it's like you what do you do how how do you sustain it and i look at because i'm very political um i look into politics i is what i do now with documentaries and stuff like that is like where do we go where where is the end state what is the end state and like i said we didn't have a mission in iraq and afghanistan is like do we just keep needlessly pumping men in there however i don't support how biden withdrew very quickly he pulled out very quick um and knowing that he's, he told the taliban he was going so what happens is our partners the afghan army that we, we've been training for years we sat there and go the americans are going in two months time what, what's going to happen to us so because he done this a lot of them defected and go the americans are going they're our support we've got air support from these guys we can't support do everything on our own so a lot of these guys just put down their weapons and join the taliban and that's where the momentum came. They go, Look, the Afghan army's falling. The Taliban, we're now back in charge and everything. And you see how the local population go, Yeah, do you know what I mean? Long term. And I, I was the thing I always remember, I was in Sangin and we had just taken over from the the rifles, um, who were in in Nolay area. And we went out and I was with the interpreter and we met the like village elder. And I've got out my jackals, chatting to him, shook his hand, and go, Hi, I'm the new commander of this area, blah, blah, blah. Um how are things? And he's like, yeah, good. Like this fool interpreter. I was like, you glad we're here? And he was like, no, not really. And I was like, take it back. I go, why? We're here to help you. He goes, but so were the last unit and the unit before that, and nothing's changed here. He goes, you're gonna go, and the Taliban gonna come. He goes, at night when you're not around, the Taliban comes to our homes. He goes, you're not changing anything. And I was like, but do you not want us here? And he's like, I just want security for my children. And that's the fundamental of all the war zones I go to. Local populations want security. And even when I done my first documentary, um, Robin Hood Complex, the fight against Islamic State, we were on the outskirts of Mosul with the Peshmerga and they assaulted... What um, um, can't remember what the town was called. bashika They assaulted it, killed all the ISIS fighters in there, liberated them. People were coming out putting on their football tops, smoking cigarettes for the first time. It was all banned under Sharia law and stuff. Um, and I spoke to an elder as well. And I said to him, like, how do you feel that now the, the Kurds are coming in and liberate this area? And he goes, but for how long? He goes, they were here to begin before ISIS came. He goes, but he ran away. He goes, look, there's an ISIS body. And he was pointing to all the dead bodies. He goes, they fought and died here. He goes, I don't like them, but they gave us something. They gave us security. They provided us something. We didn't have to like them to give us that security Um, and i think very much that's what civilians always want they want that security and whoever's going to give it to them even if it is the the leader of north korea for example or if it is the iranians or someone or assad in syria people just want to live and they go okay these are the boundaries we can live between Um, that's left that's right we just get on with what's in the middle i think when it comes to our foreign policy we move them goal posts left and right, and people in the middle don't know, really know what's going on. And they know that we're not always going to be there long term. And I think that's the issue we've got of our foreign policy.
0: 2012, you left. You did something that I didn't do. I changed branches. I yeah. went and became a physical training instructor, in, oh. <laughs> and uh, and you left. Um, you went into the closed protection world, but it was round about that end. Of, say close protection you know ships protection yeah that they are started um falling out of that a little bit how did you go from the transition of leaving to close protection then to thinking do you know what i've got not a political agenda but i'm you know i'm interested in this how did you go from that to going into filmmaking and not only going into filmmaking but being almost a, a, a war correspondent and documentary maker.
1: Yeah, so I I left and transitioned very quickly. And well, not mentally transitioned, but physically transitioned um, into the security world. And as I say, there's no security in security. And anyone who's leaving the military looking for a career in security, I would recommend not to. Um, it's shit. Don't do it. Um, but then very much I... For eighteen months, I was in the security industry. I was doing private protection, close protection, as well as maritime work, um, and I'd, I'd done all right. Like for work wise, I was getting good money, but it was just boring. It was like, how many doors can you open for some rich person? How many like, how many times can you sit outside a hotel room or do something bullshit or sit at a different table at dinner while they're having dinner with some good looking lady and you just sat there like jealous, going, "Why this guy is ugly but he's got money?" um And then I went into the maritime world and you sat on ships looking over the side of the ship at night in the middle of the dark on your watch thinking if I was to jump off the ship now how long will it take someone to realize I'm gone and how far back would I be in two minutes time and would I be eaten by sharks all these stupid things that go through every single guy's minds who's ever been in that industry you all think the same I just thought this is bullshit but I was earning good money but the problem I had then is I was like still that bootneck piece of that I was getting money and spending it Going, oh, look, I've got this loads of money. Loads of money is going to keep coming. And then all of a sudden, as I was doing the marathon, well, halfway through marathon, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. Um, a contract I was on went bust. So the job money I had coming in stopped. Um, we couldn't afford to keep the house we had. So we split up. I was then homeless for six months. I was sleeping in the back of my van. Well, for three months, I was sleeping in the back of my van. And then I moved in with my mate who was a bootneck um, in Plymouth. He had a spare room. He's like, come and live with me for free for three months. And I lived with him. Um, but I was on, on the bones of my ass. I had nothing. And then luckily, I got some more security work, managed to get money back again. And then I, I have my own place um, in Exmouth, but I was renting it out at the time. So I had a tenant, so I couldn't live there. Um, managed to move back into my place and keep working. And then on a the night, I met a guy in Exmouth in a bar who told me he's going out to fight Islamic State. He was a matlock, he was a sailor. And he's like, yeah, I'm going out with loads of men, Brits and Americans, and we're fighting Islamic State. I was like, what? My father's Syrian. So um, my background is my father's a Christian, Syrian. My mum's British, Scott. Um, so I know Syria. I have been, I grew up in Syria, like, for summer holidays in Syria. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to Syria to fight? He goes, oh, yeah, there's loads of us going with the Kurds, and we're going to go fight against Islamic State. I was like, and this guy had never been in the... Well, he'd been in the military, but never fought. He was a sailor. And I thought to myself, I went home that evening, and I thought... My family in Syria, there's a war going on now. My family under threat. I've got the skills from the core to fight. I know how to fight, but I didn't feel the need to go to Syria and Iraq to fight. But this guy does. And I thought, it's crazy. So I found him on Facebook, met him for a coffee. I was like, tell me about it. And he goes, Yeah, there's a group of us. We're training at the moment. We're going to go out as a unit. We're going to join this unit. We're going to go here to fight. Blah, blah. I was like, hmm, this is really interesting. So I randomly went online. I thought, this is a brilliant documentary. Like to follow these guys. So I went. I emailed loads of um, TV companies. They, one guy actually emailed me back from Channel 5. He goes, I don't think you understand how this industry works. Um, he goes, it's a brilliant idea. He goes, but we're the end production. We're the, we're the distributor. He goes, you need to go to production companies and tell them. like this is And they make the documentary, then they come to us. So I was like, oh, okay, thanks. So I spoke to a production company, several of them. One of them was like, yeah, we love this idea. So they sent the cameraman down. We'd done an interview with the guy who was going out to film. They're okay we're going out to follow them with you we'll make this production and then two days before the production company goes uh we're pulling out one we don't we're not confident that the access you're going to get is going to be right two security reasons it's too dangerous and free we're, we're not insured really for this so we're not going to be going with this so i was like what do i do now and i was like Pfft. um and then one of my friends like why don't you just go yourself and i was like what do you mean go myself i don't have a film and he's like just make it up and i was like Pfft. so i went on ebay I bought a camera. I didn't even know what cameras I was looking for. I had no knowledge <laughs> of cameras. Um, went, Drove up to Manchester, bought a video camera of a guy, um, paid him £700, bought the camera, then drove to Heathrow and got on a plane and then I flew to northern Iraq. And for nearly two years, I was going back and forth to Iraq, Syria, and even went across the border into Iran, um, up in the mountains with the fighters up there to make my first documentary. And that's how every time I was coming back I was doing some work, earning some money, buying some radio um, microphone equipment, then buying lights and stuff, going back, doing my next trip. And um, it's was expensive to make films. And that's how I made my first documentary. I just made it up. Um, it was very successful. We won several awards on it. It was on Amazon. I think it's taken off Amazon now, actually. Um, but yeah, people can watch it on YouTube now Robin Hood Complexified Against Islamic State. And it was really my learning curve on how to do that. And then from there, there was a scholarship to go to film school with British Forces broadcasting. So I went for there for a year. And then I made well we had um we had to do work experience for two weeks on the course to make a documentary as well. They said, Oh, you've got to make a documentary. So I was like, mm, Okay. So like, where are you going to do your work experience? So I made up some production company. I'm good at making things up. I made up a production company and I go, oh, yeah, I'm going to Ukraine with them. And they're like, okay, off you go, but don't go to the front line. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to the front line. So I took all <laughs> the film equipment from school. and went and started making my second documentary about the war in Ukraine, about volunteer fighters from there. And that's generally how it started and passed out of training for uh, film school presented by prince andrew gave me a nice certificate randy andy um and then yeah and then from there i've just been continued doing the film work working for other production companies doing bits of work and um my last project which has been the biggest one we've just done which we were entered into the oscars we unfortunately were knocked out the oscars a couple of weeks ago for 45 days and really that's and that's a whole year project i do long-term projects so they're quite labor intensive and expensive
0: so you, you didn't really kind of go into it as like a full-time thing. It was just kind of anything that we do is like creating your own businesses that you just bought something, went with it. It's like this, like the creation. Of this. Yeah. And in fact, you're the reason... Not the reason, you're the person who gave me all the advice to do this because you had your own podcast at the moment Yeah, called, I started doing it. Uh, Don't argue with, Don't you. Argue with stupid yeah, people. Yeah, which I stopped
1: doing the podcast. I need to do it again, actually. I might just nick this one and chuck it on. Do it. Yeah, just <laughs> make out as though I'm interviewing you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's because it's any business. Like, you're setting up your own business now and I think very much is people expect to have, especially when you're in the military, because especially as a Royal Marine, you're elite of the elite, you're... Guys are very thought um like positive they're motivated to do things and i think when you fail at things people very quickly pick you up for failing they go oh, you failed there, you fucked up there and i fucked up so many times i've failed on so many i've done a story on the refugee crisis where i went to turkey and followed refugees on the boat went across to europe yeah I and, I've that. Done, and i've done a story working with the sun newspaper and it got called out for being a fake story and then i was the fool guy and i got told that you lied you're a lying journalist and that affected me massively but then people like pick up on that and go oh yeah you're that guy who done that who got told, um, caught out for lying for the sun. I'm like, well, hold on a second. You don't know the ins and outs of the story. Secondly, I've made three feature documentaries. Why don't you talk about my my good work rather than my negative And A lot of people want to point at the negativity and go, oh, you fucked up there. They want to call out because they feel better about themselves. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Why don't you judge me on my good work? Yeah, but um, And very much quickly is that in the world that I'm in now, that you need to be, it's a roller coaster. You have you'll be times you'll be down, and be times you'll be up. And that right now, I'm on an up because we've just done a massive successful launch of 45 days. But I don't know if my next project's gonna be a down. We don't know that because that's the whole world of being self employed. And like you're saying, you're starting up your own business. It takes time. You can't expect to just open your doors and you're just flooded with people and you're just a massive success. It takes time to build up that credibility, it takes time for people to word of mouth, and that's what my filmmaking work is very much now, and like. I live in Exmouth because my son lives in Exmouth. He's, he's nearly fourteen now, but really, there's nothing for me in Exmouth. There's nothing here for me at all, um, other than walk my dog, go for my coffee. Really, work-wise, I could do stuff online, but I need to for the work I do. I need to be interacting with people, and like being in America was massive for me because you're, I'm sitting down with producers who've made like the Final Destination, meeting the guy who does the franchise off the Marvels and stuff like. That. So you have to be in people's face to get that connections. Um, so you have to be in it to win it, as such but i think many people struggle when they leave their forces because they're not being a royal marine you don't expect to fail because you're always around people that are very positive and keep you up there at the same level and if you are dropping back it's like doing a speed march where you start hanging out there's always someone there to push you forward again to get you back in there and when you're out in civilian world there's no one to push you back in there sometimes there is but majority of time there isn't to push you back into the block to get back up to the front um so we do fail and a lot of people don't want to fail and they feel they feel fucked up there and there's nothing wrong with failing. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is you're going to fuck up. You're going to say something you shouldn't say or you're going to do something you shouldn't have done. And you learn from it. It's not a failure. It's just it's, it's educational. You've done that. I'm not going to do that again. I've learned from that. I'm going to change it to adapt and do something better. And I think too many people look at failure as it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's life of lessons. We all fail in things in life. And I think that's the main thing that I've taken away from my filmmaking world is that you've got to get used to the word No. You've got this, I've got this brilliant idea. I've got this idea for a film. You're interested. No, you've got the 99 people going to say to you, no, but you just need that one person to go. Yeah, actually, I'd like that. Tell me more. Um, And that's what it comes down to is that in business, a lot of people don't want to accept negativity, but you've got to just roll with it. And you've got to thick skin.
0: How do you find the adaptability of having that background experience in a combat situation to just exchanging your rifle for a camera Mm. and being in situations where normally if there's a firefight going on, you're you're literally there. You'd have a rifle and you'd be involved with it as opposed to you've now got, you know, a green battle bowler on your head with a black bit of CBA Mm -hmm. that says press on it. And you're there going, uh, we've got rounds coming in, there's mortars landing there and you're giving sort of the background feed for what's going on as opposed to be involved in it did that help you a lot
1: I love it because I can hide so when rounds are coming in I can hide I can get my head down rather than have to look out and see where the enemy are coming from um I remember when I was on the outskirts of Mosul um filming for the first documentary we got ambushed badly and um I was with two other journalists in in a shell scrape and I just had my mobile phone on a selfie stick and I was like in this, this ditch and I was like, I'm not going to get out of this ditch. ISIS are all around us. The guys here, the soldiers with are just useless. So I just like put my phone on my selfie stick and just lifted it up. And rounds were coming in. I was like, this is brilliant. I need to stick my head up. If I was, if I had a rifle, I'd have to stick my head up. Um, but it's, for me, it's very different now. I think what it is, because the tours that we've done off of Iraq and Afghanistan were very kinetic, I've got it out of my system. To fight, I've done it. Been there, done it, got the T-shirt. I don't feel the need now as a filmmaker to want to fight. And a lot of guys I meet who are that alpha males who go, Yeah, I want to go, I wanna go fight a war. And it's like, well, you haven't really ever seen real war. Because if you have seen real war, you have gone out of your system. You're done now. I'm very content being on the observer. I'm very content on just sitting there just seeing what's going on, see how other people. Um but at the same time, I always try to lend a hand to the people I'm with. As a as a objective um uh, media person, I shouldn't be getting involved, I don't get involved. But there was been a couple of times, uh, mainly on shit, Sorry, um, on my first documentary, I was, I was in a place called Kukuk um, in, in northern Iraq, and it was a very hostile area. And I, I, was, I move around generally because my budget's low in taxis. That's how I move around the front lines, is in taxis or bummer rides or hiding back of ambulances or however it is. Um, and I got a taxi. I was in Kukuk. I was coming back to um, Suleimania, the city, and the taxi driver was lost. And so we're like, where are we going? He's like, I don't know how to get out of the city. I'm not from this area. I was like, and it was full of ISIS in the area, like sleeper cells. The Iraqi army were in the area. So I was with the Kurds. The Iraqi army were very hostile as well. You couldn't know who you could trust. And then um, we, we saw a Peshmerga soldier who was going, blah, blah, blah. he's like, I'm going back to Sulaymaniyah as well. Can I get in a ride? So he's like, yeah. So he got in the car as well. They both got out to go speak to a local guy to find out the directions out of the city. And it's now coming to dusk. And there's a Iraqi checkpoint there guy looked like Saddam Hussein a big guy um and he's come over to the car and saw me sat in the back but the Peshmerga soldier left his rifle on the front so I'm sat in the back on my own I never carry weapons ever um he's looking in the back of the car sees I'm a white man um even though I've got a beard and I think I can blend in a little bit easier but he could tell I was a, a foreigner he went back to his little box picked up his AK-47 got into his little knock your phone started phoning someone and pointing towards the car so I'm like ah, this is now this is like kidnap territory now. So I just reached over, picked up the AK, made sure it was ready. Um got in the back, started leaning over, beeping the horn to the two guys, like telling them to come back and they're like, what's going on? I was like, beep beep beep. The guy's now getting like high rate that he's on the phone, like going boom, we've got this guy here. They come running back to the car, get in the car, and now they realise I've got the AK. They're now thinking I'm taking them prisoner. So I'm like to him drive. I didn't talk the language so I'm like fucking drive. So they drive going in and out all the alleyways, get out of the area. And once we're out of the area I then like clear his weapon, give it back to the soldier. And then I phoned my friend who could talk and translate and say, like, this is what happened. explains he's like, ah, yeah, dangerous man, dangerous man. Um, <laughs> yeah, no shit. So he's like, yeah. So like there, I don't carry weapons because you can't have a camera and carry a weapon. Um And there was another time where, in fact, this is a funny one. If you watch the first documentary, um, I was met some American volunteer fighters in Sinjar, in a region where isis were everywhere and they're fighting them and they go come up to the hill we show you our, like where our positions we got up there and these two guys ex-us marines now fighters and with their father they had a 50 cal on a soft mount so the americans don't use soft mounts it's like the bracket that holds the gun um so they're like we're gonna we're gonna shoot up a mosque i was like why and they're like because oh, we're going to shoot the mosque That's where isis hang out so I was like, okay so they get up on top of the truck with the 50k to show off to me with the cameras and he's clicking it and the, he doesn't understand how soft mount overrides the hard mount so he's like Ugh. I was like what are you doing they're like oh we've never seen this before I was like it's a soft mount and they're like how do you know I'm going am a former marine Da-da. they're like oh do you know how to use this I was like yeah I'll like, oh, show us so I'm like so turn the cameras off turn the cameras, give, I was giving them a weapon handling lesson <laughs> on the soft mount. Then all of a sudden I get back down get the camera and then they start opening up. And I was like, so I don't really get involved, but there's been times where I've been like, Hmm. And they, when I was in Armenia for Nagorno Karabakh, the region there is talking to about the trenches, the trenches were just straight lines. And I was like to the commander, I was like, why are your trenches straight lines? He goes, this is how we're told to build them? I go, no, you want to make them zigzags. I go, it was a bomb lands or round lands. It's going to go straight down. You need to make it zigzag to give you that protection barriers. Um, but you need, I need to be very careful because when you're trying to give out this advice to people, because you don't want people dying, um, people start thinking, who are you? Are you a spy? you work for the government? It's like, no, I'm just a guy who knows something and I'm trying to help you out here. So I try to con- con- compartmentise between being a filmmaker and being like a former Royal Marine. But yeah, really, I don't have any interest in getting involved in the fight. But there again, I'm hanging around with a lot of guys who are less trained than what I am.
0: Have there been any situations where you just thought, I ain't getting out of this. There must have been.
1: Um, mainly when I was in in Iraq, um, the ISIS one where you're surrounded by ISIS everywhere you, and the guys you're with are just like <laughs> ragtag. Um, and also in the latest one in um, Nagorno Nog- Karabagh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, just the fact is drones were everywhere and they were just launching their drones, attacking civilian vehicles. And you could hear them flying over. Every vehicle I was getting in, I was like thinking is a drone watching us. And I felt very much how the Taliban must have felt with our air uh, superiority. It's like, oh, am I being watched now? Normally we control the skies, don't we? So when I'm on the other end of it, it's quite, it's quite scary because you're thinking, well, okay, right, I'm moving tactically across the ground, but if there's something watching me from above, it doesn't matter where I go. It's like we all watch police like programs about the police interceptors and all that stuff. When you put the, the police helicopter above and there's like a high-speed chase and everything, you can't see the blue lights in your rear, you don't know that that helicopter's watching you and they're going to come and get you. And very much I was on the receiving end of the drone warfare there, which was very intense. So I thought, I wouldn't say I'm not going to get out of here, but it's just very much like, if I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, I'm dying here.
0: There was a bit of footage I saw a while ago. It was a stage show. And um, they were, it was when drones first started to become like, a, I've got one here that I got given for Christmas. What
1: kind of drone is that?
0: Ah, oh, it's just a little crappy one that you get from a shop.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: Like you know what I mean? Like it costs like 30 quid. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And uh but it was about that size. And what they'd done was they'd put um explosive mm. into it, um, but they put technology into the drone that created face recognition. So you had a swarm of these little drones. That could fly around, and you could almost use them as being like a hitman. Put some facial recognition software into it, and they had a dummy on the stage of, um, you know, like the uh, like not um, like almost realistic plastic faces mm. they use for like uh, boxing dummies. And they had this drone f- um, flying on it, and they gave a demonstration of like this is the facial recognition, and they put it on to like attack or whatever and it literally flew straight into it and there was like a little like a percussion charge like would be like in an um an IED or something like that where it it just made a little hole pew, straight in this straight in his head and I was like is this is this Future. a state of technology now and then when i started watching the documentary last night of uh 45 days um which you can get on Vimeo
1: Vimeo yeah Is that what it's
0: called? I call it Vimo.
1: Vimo, Vimeo, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that one. Or you go to my Instagram, Emil Geeson, you'll see it in the link in my bio.
0: We'll put that at the
1: end. It's a little plug.
0: And (laughs) No, we'll do it at the end. And, And then you started talking about the drone threat. Yeah. And it's something that I'd never really thought about before. And then especially when the guy said that when they were looking up at night, like they, the stars. Yeah, the stars. They didn't know whether the stars were drones or not. And that must be absolutely terrifying. When you're fighting a a generic warfare fight where you've got boots on the ground, but then you can't see something in the sky. And like you say, it it, it related quite well to the to the air dominance that we had, whether it was AH, whether it was, you know, the um the B fifty twos in the air dropping J mm-hmm. on people and you know, on the Taliban if you if you flip, roll, reverse it, and you look at at somebody else's point of view, it must have been quite disconcerting. And especially for you filming that as well, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like.
1: The thing is, I, I know when I go into war zones now, um, I am just a pawn in that war zone. I, I don't push it to the level of where I put my life in danger. But when you've got threats from air, you've got from artillery and rockets and drones everywhere's the front line as, as we know like in afghanistan is like where's the front line in afghanistan there is no front line it's all the front line <laughs> um and very differently is that our me and you the way we fought wars is old school because the way wars are fought now which you see in 45 days is the way wars are fought now and how wars are going to be fought from now on like you're saying about the drones being um adapted like off-the-shelf drones isis used them very effectively and what they're doing is they're using them for suicide vehicles. They're using drones for surveillance. So they're calling in vehicle, suicide vehicle, to overwatch and going, right, take next left, take the next right. They know a the vehicle's coming, so they would move the checkpoint back. And we had loads of suicide bombers come towards us in Iraq and Syria. They'd move the checkpoint back, try to hide from the suicide bomber. But the drone's watching and goes, take the next right. Bam, bam, targets to your front, 100 metres. And they're driving it straight. And so they're using drones off the shelf for surveillance. And then, like you were saying, they're adapting drones cheap little drones to put high explosives on put grenades on it and they're using them as either kamikaze ones or they're using it to drop and they're using it very effectively on the front line in Ukraine now is very much both sides are using drones little off-the-shelf drones with explosives on to drop into the trenches and then what we saw now in Nagorno-Karabakh in 45 days is that the generation of drones where it is not drones like we use a predator but smaller scale cheaper drones which are military grade drones but they're very effective and you've got the israeli drones the hapop which is a kamikaze drone which can sit up for six seven hours being observation surveillance of the area, and it sits there. It's called a loitering um, drone. And all of a sudden, it PIDs a target, and then it would nosedive. So the drone then turns into a missile, nosedives, and kills its target, and detonates. And um, so this kind of warfare is very different. Is the fact is that you've got people hundreds of miles away, sat in a control box nowhere near the front line sat there doing playstation The are playing playstation my son who plays call of duty very much very similar he's calling airstrikes in and that's what it is now wars become very depersonalized and i think that stuff in very much is the future but also what we're seeing now is swarms of drones this is the new adapts and how they're going to do it it's cheaper scale drones that come in swarms so five six seven plus drones coming in and boom, taken out a military unit very quickly and effective. not just one drone, it's, it's a combination of drones. Um, since the war in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, is all militaries around the world have done uh, lessons learned from it because countries watch other wars to see how they can adapt and change. Main battle tanks in that war were really not effective at all um it's because the drones the drones were taken out main battle tanks like, so what do we do do we spend twenty thousand dollars on a drone or do we spend two million dollars on the tank that could be taken out by the twenty thousand dollar drone so very much the the way people move across the battlefield is going to change it's going to become very more robotic and so drone warfare is the new future and even the royal marines now you see the guys looking all gucci with their little drones flying them up there and stuff like that it is the future it's because if you could fight a war, which body bags, men, aren't, your men aren't coming back in body bags, it means public opinion doesn't change on the war. It's like, okay, we're fighting a war, but we're fighting a war in Afghanistan, but no boys are coming back to and bassett Okay, yeah, well, who cares? The war's going on. So very much militaries are looking for a non a lethal force without actually putting men's life in danger. Of course, men are going to die in war, but you can minimise that for your forces and drones are the way ahead.
0: Where did the idea of 45 days come about like how did you how did you how did you get onto it because obviously the war started quite quickly there was a there was yeah. a build-up to it so how did you get the tip off
1: so whenever it comes so like even now what's going on um whenever there's a war going on there's civil unrest somewhere i always get people messaging me on social media going oh, are you going to go cover this and i'm like when i get these messages i think to myself how much money do you think i have i self-fund <laughs> all my projects all i i get raise money so it's like if you're going to give me an idea Give me an idea where I can get the money to support that project. I'm happy to go anywhere and do anything um, as long as I can afford it. So when the war, obviously, COVID was going on. There was lockdowns going on. Um, I was I was doing a bit of work here and there, mainly uh, editing work and graphics work. And then all of a sudden, um, the war in Armenia, between Armenia and Azerbaijan started. And I saw online all the drone footage that was going on. They're very much for that war. It's both sides were releasing drone footage online on Twitter and Facebook. As in, like, it's propaganda, But it was showing a real life war going on through social media. It's crazy, Um, so I thought I need a new project. I don't really know much about what's going on there, and that's how I how I do my things. I want to know more myself, so in in, in order to understand more, I need to go there to get grassroots knowledge. so I just looked into flights like I always do how much on Skyscanner was a flight to Armenia um, and I was like oh can I get access what's the access process so is, is anyone out there already that I can speak to um, and then I just bit the bullet I was booked a flight got out there but remember it's Covid time so very hard for travel and everything else am I going to get there they're going to put me in quarantine what's going on I got there I got um, press credentials and then from there I moved to the front line it wasn't it went as quick as that or easy but within a couple of days I was on the front line area um. So yeah, just investigating. I, to begin with, I weren't really going to make a documentary, and I just wanted to go out and do something. I like I like adventures. I mean, war zones, bizarrely. So yeah, I went out there to see what was going on. I then had to go to Ukraine because I had a job with National Geographic, so I knew I had only two and a half weeks there. So I went to Ukraine, done a job they're looking into like neo Nazis that I knew in, in there um, helping them locate them guys. And then I done a GoFundMe account because so many my, my social media so I was doing everything on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, updating what was going on. And like I said, because I was shown the war from the Armenian perspective, there's over there's two million Armenians in Armenia, ten million of them living out of Armenia in the diaspora. So straight away people started following my my following grew and grew quickly as people like who is this british guy who's got nothing to do with his area in the war zone he's showing us firsthand what the government aren't showing us um and then i set up a GoFundMe account and it blew up and we raised a lot of money um so i went back again and then for there for the last year i've been near enough in Armenia, um, making this documentary and editing it. We, the, the t- the guy who edited it and the producer American, they flew in from America. Cause I was in having issues getting visas. So yeah, very much the money was from GoFundMe. You know, people were very supportive for the project.
0: Why Armenia and not Azerbaijan?
1: Good question. Um, Turkey aligned itself with our, um, with Azerbaijan because Turkey and, um, Azerbaijan are like, they're like brothers, cousins as in two countries. Um, Like I say, my father is a Christian Arab. I'm not religious myself. But I saw the persecution of Christians during the Syrian war. Um, I've seen it in other conflicts and what was going on in Iraq. So very much I was like, this Christian nation is surrounded by free Muslim nations. And to the north, it's got Georgia, small population. Um, I knew about the Armenian genocide where a million and a half Armenians were persecuted in 1915. And I just thought, my time I spent on my first documentary with the Kurds is... The Kurds are enemies to the Turks. So I came under a lot of attacks from Turkish people going, you're propagandists, you're telling their story kind of thing. So I've seen the aggression that some Turkish, not all of the Turkey, I've been to Turkey and I spent a lot of time in Turkey working. Um, It's a beautiful place and people are are lovely, but there is a small proportion of people that are very hardline people. So I thought when when Azerbaijan aligned itself with Turkey or Turkey aligned itself with Azerbaijan, I thought I don't want to get caught up in that. I don't want to get caught up in this, so I'm going to go from the Armenian perspective, which is totally the underdog here. Um, and like I said, Armenia lost the war in the end. So I was there when they lost the war, as you see in the documentary. Um, so yeah, that was the main reason I wanted to go from there. I wanted to show like, it's a story of David versus Goliath. Um, Armenia won the war they they had with Azerbaijan in the '90s, um, but they lost this one here. And so yeah, I I, I stand by going to that side. Some people go well. It's only from one perspective. They go, yeah. But if I was making a documentary on Afghanistan, British troops in Afghanistan, if I don't film with the Taliban, doesn't mean this is not objective. It's just a humanization perspective. And the documentary Forty Five Days is a human a humanization perspective. It's not about the, all the fighting. It's not about war as such. It's about all the people. And I think that's what all my documentaries focuses on is the human cost of war.
0: I think the way that you put yourself across is you, you know you could be you could say it's controversial, um, but people would say it was controversial just because you're just saying what you see. Mm. And we were talking about this before, about social media, the news platforms. They're very much, whether we like it or not, they're very much dictated in the way that the news is is generalised and put across to us. You know, whether it's COVID, whether it's what's happening in Downing Street at the moment, Mm. whether it's different types of war, what side we're going to be looking at. I think if you've got an open mind, like if people are listening to this can tell that you've got a very open mind to things, you want to look at both perspectives as much as you can, that if you say what you see, that can be seen as controversial more so than being biased. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it's like in in 45 days is... It's people's opinions. People are telling me what they're seeing and what's going on. And I don't really shape the narrative. I just follow people. I don't really give too much of my own personal um, opinion. It's about the people I'm with. But like you're saying about the media, I'm, I'm totally independent. Um, and that comes with its downfall in the sense that you need funding. It takes a lot more work rather than work with a big production company. But, um, but being independent, I can tell the stories I want to tell the stories that people want to tell me as with a camera is even like here with this podcast with your two mics is me being here. I'm opening myself up to you. You're now coming into my world and learning. And that's very much like a camera. When I turn up my camera, people welcome me into their world for a short period of time to tell me what's going on. And when you've got these conflicts in Iraq, Syria, Ukraine, and Nagorno-Karabakh is people want their stories told. And when you haven't got the main news channels coming in with an agenda, and you've got independence coming in. The, the increase of independence is massively growing now. People have got a distrust for the mainstream media, um, which is good for me because people like support independent work. Um, is people want to tell their story with a non-agenda-driven basis. I don't have an agenda, I didn't go, I didn't go to Armenia and go, I've got an agenda here, I want to tell this story. I'm like, I'm gonna find out what's going on, I'm gonna then make the documentary edit it at the end. And the mainstream media is a business and people need to see I've learned the BBC who gets its money through selling products as well as uh, taxpayers money is all the other news channels around the world are businesses they they only survive by selling commercials a newspaper only sells and makes money now not from the selling of the papers from advertisement within that paper or they do it online with a lot of clickbait um but all news channels they need to survive and money in all these organisations dropped massively. So what they do is they tell stories they think their audience want to hear. They go, okay, for example, West Country News, where we are now in the West Country, they'll tell stories that they think people in the West Country want to know. There's local regional news. When you then go at six o'clock on ITN, you go to ITN News, they tell, because they've got adverts to sell, they're going, okay, right, what what are people interested in? Okay, they're interested in Boris Johnson and COVID at the moment. Let's tell them. And what we're seeing now is I know very many journalists who get paid more money for telling COVID stories than they do other stories. I know journalists that were in Armenia telling about the war and then their, their um, publisher or the editor's going, get me a COVID story about the war. It's because that sells. So they go, okay, what we, what, how do we sell a story? So very much is a business organisation and it goes in with an agenda. We saw that, um, let me just move the microphone up actually because my head's dropping. Um, we very much saw this during the war in Syria, is that all the Western media were very much anti-Assad. Not because they disliked him. It's because that's the narrative of the country. And in order to sell their news, they need to tell stories that anti-Assad. Um, so they are narrative-driven. And I think very much what I do as independent is I don't stick to a narrative. I don't need to stick to a narrative because I don't have shareholders to appease. I don't have commercials to appease and nothing else. So I can tell a story that I want. So when people go, oh, it's a bit biased, which is very rare. People don't say my work's biased at all. But if randomly some people will, mainly Turks and Azeris on this project, it's like, well no, Is this is their opinion. This is what they're saying, this is what the other side are saying about you. If you want to counter it, make a documentary yourself and tell that story. Um I spoke to the Azeri, the Azerbaijan embassy, I said, um, can we do an interview to like get your opinion? They go, Nope, we refuse to give you an interview. So I was like, okay, cool. If I and they even stated if I go to Azerbaijan I'll be arrested because I've <laughs> illegally entered in the territory which I weren't allowed in, they're saying. Um so yeah, it's it's humanization and I think human stories can't be subjective well it can be subjective but it, it, they are subjective but objective at the same time because it's, it's someone's opinion well, it's, well that's a bit wrong actually it is someone's opinion someone's if you say to me about what's going on in the world that's your opinion isn't it doesn't mean it's bias it's just it's your it's your personal opinion
0: if i go back a little bit there's a question uh i asked a few people um what sort of things to ask you and there's a couple really and the last one will kind of finishes off nicely i think um so this one really is when you were filming the Robin Hood complex because it was your first one and you kind of went out to Iraq and the Middle East ad hoc apparently you were getting quite a bit of negative feedback about from Servicemen, non servicemen, people over social media because you did a lot of stuff through um, Instagram stories yeah, and yeah. Facebook and all that sort of thing. You were getting quite a bit of negative feedback apparently from people saying, What are you doing? You're just cuffing this. Oh, yeah. 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 What, what was your feeling behind all of that?
1: So that was, that's like a lifetime ago now when I get there. No one would dare say that to me now because I've seen like three documentaries I've done in War Zones. But when, when I first went, I remember when I first went out to the Middle East um, for the first documentary. Yeah, it was mainly it was guys in their fifties forties, fifties and sixties who served one tour of Northern Ireland who now think they're military experts on all wars that go around the world. And it's like and like we're saying, we, we fought wars that were very kinetic, very like Afghanistan and Iraq were very kinetic operations. So we've seen a very different war to many other people I've seen. Um and knowing that is going back to the Middle East is I feel like my father's from the Middle East I've spent a lot of time in the military in the Middle East. I understand the culture a little bit better. But what people didn't understand was who ISIS were, and that's what the story was to tell: who these people are and why these men are fighting against them. So yeah, on social media to begin with, I was getting a lot of negative um, remarks from people going, "Oh, I don't think they have oh, um, orange jumpsuits in your size. You're only going to get your head cut off. What are you doing playing this?" Da-da-da. And I, I just tell this whatever you do in life, there's always going to be someone that's going to try and knock you down. Um, Close friends were like, Are You sure about this? So I was like, I don't know, I'm just making up. I am cuffing it. And why not? It's like any business, it's a business, isn't it? I'm, I'm risking my life, of course, going there. I have a son, <clears throat> but he understands my work I do now. And the fact is that, like I was saying there, so there's always going to be someone to knock you down, no matter what line of business you go in. There's always someone who thinks they know better than you. And it's like, but they're not going to take the chance. But then the thing is, when you're trying to make it happen, they will knock you down. But then when you've made it, when I've made the documentary and I've watched it, I've gone, actually, yeah, that's brilliant. That's well done, actually, kind of thing. And I think more people need to be more supportive to go, actually, yeah, okay. Have you thought about it? This is is X, Y, and Z. Um, Have you thought about these? Rather than going, oh, you're stupid. You're an idiot. You're going to die doing this. It's like, what do you know? It's like, save your comment. And this is the thing with social media is my business is obviously a lot through social media is how I get... uh, my following is how I get jobs and stuff like that is it's like like the, this the like a like the, the saying goes opinions like arse- arseholes everyone's got one and when it comes to social media it's because people are sat behind the screen they're sat on their toilet they're sat on their sofa they're lying in bed it's very quick and easy to send something and then think i've just said that rather well, than if they came they wouldn't say it to your face they wouldn't come up to you and consciously go i'm about to say this this person is physically in front of me when it comes to social media it's very toxic especially twitter is people just throw it out there and they think oh it's gone and like you're saying it's out in the ether it's gone it's there um and the problem i have now is because i am not i'm very well known amongst the armenian community and, and in in hollywood i and in um, la i'm very well known now as well is that Everything I post now, I know is going to get screenshotted. And things like, even if I post something and I realize, like on Instagram on the story, and you realize a spelling mistake, you delete it. People, I've had people send me a screenshot of my original post go, Why have you just deleted that? I was like, bloody hell, that was like 20 seconds ago. Wow. It was like, there's spelling mistakes. Not because I'm taking back what I've said, is there a spelling mistake? I'm changing it. So you need to be very careful about that. Is that on social media? it is a very toxic place and it can be like you were saying about avoiding all the news because it's negative. Social media can be very negative. And when I was actually launching just before we done the the premiere in Hollywood, I'd done a podcast with some guys where we were drinking whiskey and the war in Armenia is very political for a lot of people. Um, a lot of people don't support the prime minister. Some people do. Duh, duh, duh. And you can say one thing and you, you piss off the whole population. Um, and I've done a podcast where we're drinking whiskey. It was a three hour podcast. My documentary is only 90 minutes long. So this podcast <laughs> was, was double that time. And we're talking a lot of stuff. And the problem you've got is like even this podcast now is what, I, what we could be talking about at this second now, whatever minute we're on now. 50, imagine 58 minutes now, we might be talking, we spoke about it in minute two. So what we're doing is we're talking now in 58, relating back. But what we could do is we could take out of context something I say at 58 minutes or what you say at 58 minutes to discredit you. And that's the problem we've got with social media is people try to always look for the negative. They always try to put you down. And what they do is they take things out of context. And we see it with the media. We see it with like Boris Johnson. We see it with governments. We see it with Trump. People take things out of context to discredit, to suit their narrative. It's very dangerous because... People don't see like when the podcast are done in, in, in Hollywood is people didn't listen to the whole three hour podcast because that bore, bore you to death. But they want to listen to the 40 seconds that's controversial and then form an opinion on it. Um, So I think it's a danger, it's a massive danger, it's a double-edged weapon. Um, but yeah, these people that are very negative, I, it's like, go fuck yourself. It's like, what are you doing with your sad little life? And it's not, it's like, I don't want to discredit them and put them down, but it's like, don't come into my world and try to put me down for trying to do something that I believe in support it or if you don't support it shut the fuck up simple and i think there's too many of the veteran community that try to always belittle people that are trying to do something and i think it's their own insecurity that they feel inadequate that they haven't done anything since they left the forces that they just want to put you down for trying to do something um but again it comes with the it comes with the territory even with your podcast you probably have people that be negative to you it comes with the territory if you're going to put yourself out in the public domain you've got to accept criticism and if you you take it personally, you're never gonna do anything because people are always gonna to wanna to hit you down.
0: Yeah, you definitely gotta be thick skinned. Yeah. Fortunately, um, if anybody does send any negative feedback my way, I just abuse the crap out of them with we'll ends. I, I live in Limpston Village in come and find me, <laughs> I'm absolutely fine with
1: that. Then then this is the thing like I was saying, is it's very it's too easy. Like before these people that are crazy were sat in basements they're sat in their mum's basement just talking to the walls now all of a sudden with social media they can come into your world and there's so much hate out there and i do i do support freedom of speech if you've got something to say say it of course say it but be constructive of what you're saying don't just say you're shit why am i shit tell me why is shit um but the the problem you've got is some people because i like i say i spend a lot of my life on social media uh more time than i should but there's some people you can't reason with some people you haven't you try to have like a you said this so i don't support you because you've said this okay cool the reason i said this is because x y and z they don't want to listen to x y and z they just want to hear what they they want. they've got a narrative and not going to change it um so like that podcast i started which I, I need to continue don't argue with stupid people that's where it came from is because you can't argue with stupid people you try to change someone's opinion or well, not change their opinion but trying to educate them to your opinion some people don't aren't interested in that we've all got friends that won't ever change their opinion on anything. They're like, no, I believe that's white. Black's black, white's white. I don't care. There's no grey. And you try to say, well, actually, there is grey because this... But some people would never change their opinion. And I think these toxic people just leave them to live in their little echo chamber.
0: But surely that's what a conversation is about, though. You've got your opinion and your point of view and you put that across. Somebody else has got their point of view or opinion and they put that across and then... You know, if you're in a, a bigger group discussion, it becomes a little bit more, yeah. um, a bit serious. Well, as long as you've got a little bit of proof behind you to back it up. I mean, it's like anything, it's like the Joe Rogan podcasts, mm. you know, he talks about certain things and gets people on, he talks about those people. They've got their, um, they've got their research or their evidence behind what they're saying. But then there's always a counter to that. But what's that's it? where a debate and a conversation comes from. And if you don't have your own point of view, then what's the point in saying anything at all?
1: And this is, that's a great point you made there. Is The problem we have now is we're so polarised now in society. And the reason, that is, the reason I believe it is because the way social media works for algorithms. So the algorithm is your personal algorithm. My algorithm is different to yours. What I do on my phone today will change my algorithm, for example, what sites I look at and stuff, is that, It's all these little data points. So they go, this algorithm goes, he's interested in this. So we're going to target him with this information because we think he's interested in it. So what happens is now we live in echo chambers. So for example, we've seen it with Brexit. We see it with COVID. We saw it with Trump and stuff, for example. So if you live, if you were to say you are pro-Brexit, you're the media you're going to get and the stories you're going to get and the people that you're going to see on your social media are generally people that support your your vision and what you believe in your your thing is because that algorithm thinks oh he likes that ads like is um, pro brexit so is meal oh they want to be connected so we're going to show them each other's posts it's how it works so all of a sudden we now live in these echo chambers where the information we're getting is just an echo of what we already think and we believe so when someone comes in and counters that it's like you feel attacked are oh, you attacking me it's because at the moment i the way i believe it is that we're not open now to criticism people aren't open to difference opinion because the way our algorithm works the way the information that we consume now is totally changed and like i was saying we've seen it with covid now we've seen it with brexit we saw it with trump we've seen it with boris johnson we see it in this world that you feel under attack if someone doesn't agree with you and i, I i'm totally open to dialogue i can i can chat to you and have a conversation you could be totally different to me well, okay i don't believe what you're saying i'm gonna listen to you Because like you're saying, that's a debate, it's a conversation. I mean, you don't need to fall out over this. Like you hear about families no longer talking over the vaccine because one doesn't want to get vaccinated, one person is vaccinated. It's like, oh, we can't be family anymore or we can't be friends. It's like, no, we can have a difference of opinion, but still agree to be friends. I think very much now society, and I think it is linked to all social media, um, is people have changed. There's people don't want to be, they feel attacked if someone doesn't agree with them. And there's nothing wrong with, I like it when someone doesn't agree with me, because that's how I learn. If I only hear someone that reinforces my opinion, I don't learn. I'm not educating myself. I'm not hearing someone else's different opinion. And I think that's where society is going wrong. I think people need to start having more conversations.
0: What's your drive for doing all of this? Have you got an end game or is it just to keep creating different documentaries, putting perspectives across that wouldn't necessarily get out of there?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. So, where, and that's a, that's a golden question of every, everyone's like, where would you want to do Is that question, it's like being on a first date, and someone goes, Where do you see yourself in five minutes' time? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going to be in five minutes' time, 50 minutes' time. My life is very much here and there. It's like, I don't know where I'm going to be next month, for example. Like, my son's mother, we're not together, she goes, Can you keep the dates between April the 1st and April the 5th free to have the dog because I'm taking the son away? I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to be in April. I can't commit to that. And it's my life is a bit of an up and down. Um, I, the way I looked at it, I was chatting to my producer. He's 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 in America, and I was saying to him, who um, worked with me on forty five days. I, he goes, "Oh, would you? What, what's your plans now?" And I was like, I said to him, "I see, like." From the age of 18 to 30 was my military time. That was my military career. From 30 to 40, I see it as my documentary time. Um, I'm continuing to do documentaries, but I see I'm now 40. Um, 40 up to 50, I'm now going to try and transition into movies and film. That's where I want to go. I want to tell factual, true films, like based on a true story film. But um, So is that transition from documentaries into film direct. I want to be a director. That's what I love doing, directing. Um, so that's what I want to do is go into the movie industry. Um, which is a seamlessly transition because a lot of um, well-known directors were doc- documentary directors. But it's getting your foot in the door to get someone who goes, you're a first-time director, we're going to give you this amount of investment to do it. So that's the hardest part, getting that investment. Um, so yeah, but I'm looking into... I've, a few other documentary ideas at the moment. Because documentaries for me are natural and easy because I'm good at telling stories. i am I'm just naturally got a gift for just telling a story because I, I believe in it. And I think very much I say to people, especially when I talk at schools, so I go... Especially film schools and um, journalists, when I talk to them, go. If you believe in the story, other people believe in that story. If you don't believe in that story, no one's gonna believe in that story. And I think that's the difference between it being independent and working for a production company. Because if you work for a production company, you're just told to go do a story that you're like, I don't really care about this. But when you're independent, you're doing it because you're putting blood, sweat, and tears into it. Um, and I actually worked out the other day that the amount of time I've put onto 45 days that I was on less than minimum wage per hour for the amount of work put into it than a Chinese child in a sweatshop that's how much do you mean it's not about the money you're doing it for the love of it um so yeah I want to move transition into movies but I know that's going to take time um we're looking at a potential don't know if we're going to go ahead with this one because homelessness is a massive thing mental health is a massive thing um I was shocked in Los Angeles about the amount of homeless people. there. There's over 80,000 homeless people in Hollywood. There, under every bridge. There's shanty towns. So we're looking potentially, if we could get off the ground, um, a documentary called 30 Days in Hollywood, where I'll go homeless for 30 days, living on the streets, looking into the different people and personalities. What? How do these people become homeless? Because like I was saying, I was homeless for six months. Um, it's like, how do these people end up? And then doing well-filmed interviews with them like netflix style interviews with the characters we meet giving them a name like this is andy this is andy who you just seen on the streets this is his background like telling the story about how this veteran ended up on the street how this actor tried to come to hollywood to make it but now has ended up on the street how's this woman claire who's lost her children because she's now addicted to heroin how did it... these people weren't these people they are now once upon a time they they were someone different and they will be someone different in the future so that's one idea we're looking into at the moment to see if we can get it off the ground, um, but once again, because I'm independent, it all comes down to funding. Where do where do that's the biggest question. We've got so many ideas. Like I'm I'm writing a script at the moment for a movie. Um, it's like where do we get the funding from to get this off the ground? And that's the golden question for every business.
0: We're gonna close this down. Yeah. Where can people find your content? You, you've got a website, and I know 45 days is out at the moment on Vimo, like we said at the start. Yeah.
1: So um. Through, best things through social media, Emil Geeson, and on all, all, all my social platforms. There's a link there to the latest documentary and to the website. The website for forty five days is forty five days film dot net, or there's my my page called emilgeeson.com. dot com. Um, yeah, so social media really is how people connect me. If anyone's got any ideas for funding or any ideas for films or documentaries, send me a message. I'm always open to um, discussion with people. Um, just don't talk to me about COVID. <laughs> the conversations now over
0: Geese it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you mate thanks, for, no, thanks thank for your you time much. and that's it if you like the podcast please like share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also leave me a little review on Apple Podcasts that would be amazing if you could do that thanks for listening